Hello and welcome to As We Wait, an in-depth verse-by-verse study through the entire Bible. Join pastor and teacher Mike Scanlon of Calvary Chapel, Susanville, California, as he continues the study through the Old Testament book of Judges. This is the conclusion of a three-part study of Judges, chapters 7 and 8. You have a few moments, so why don't you grab your Bibles and follow along. Please turn to Judges, chapter 7. As I wait, you look at verse 4. And Gideon came to Jordan and passed over. He and the 300 men that were with him faint, yet pursuing them. And he said unto the men of Succoth, Give, I pray you, loaves of bread unto the people that follow me, for they faint, and I am pursuing after Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. And the princes of Succoth said, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna now in thine hand, that we should give bread unto your army? And Gideon said, Therefore, when the Lord had delivered Zeba and Zalmunna into mine hands, then will I tear your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with the briars. Now, two things. First off, it says getting in the 300 men, not getting in the 295 men. What I'm getting at is that they had no casualties. He started off with 300 men standing right there in the open, that God was their shield, God was their protection, and they still have 300 men. In the meantime, 120,000 Midianites have died. Now, The battle started off over here by Mount Gilboa, and as the Midianites fled, they came down and they fled across the Jordan River and turned north, east, and south. And basically, now Gideon and his 300 men are crossing over here. They come to Succoth. It's the first town they come to. And this is not a Midianite town. These are Jews. Remember Reuben and Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh settled on that side of the river? And so he's come to a town of the Gadites, And his Jewish brethren are refusing to help him. The men have been up all night. They've been running and fighting, and now they're hungry. And it says they're faint. And basically, he says, well, hang on. Which way is the wind blowing? Have you gotten the victory yet? Do you have these kings in your hand? No? Oh, I'm sorry, we can't give you any bread. And that's pretty pathetic. But Gideon tells them, when, in verse 7 there, and Gideon said, therefore, when the Lord hath delivered, not if, When the Lord puts them in my hand, I will be back. (laughs) And you're going to be sorry, basically. Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 12, verse 30, He that is not with me is against me. And he that gathereth not with me scatters abroad. Jesus says that we have to pick sides. If you take the pulse of the world, sometimes it doesn't look like Jesus is winning. You look around and you kind of go, "Eh, it doesn't look so good for the good guys. But, you know, if you read the end of the book, it's just like this battle. God wins. And so the men of Succoth are making a very big mistake. And it's sad to see that. We're called to make a choice here and now. We all have to make a choice. Whose side are we on? And there's only two sides in this battle. People think that there's a third option. There is not a third option. We're either with Jesus or we are against Jesus. And knowing that he's going to win, the best thing we can do is surrender and join his team. And that's what he calls us to do. But then we move on to verses 8 and 9. And here we read, And he went up thence to Penuel. And Penuel is the next town a little farther east. 
And so they were hungry and worn out here. They had traveled probably another six or seven or eight or nine miles, give or take, and they arrive in Penuel. And it says there in verse 8, they went up thence to Penuel and spoken to them likewise. And the men of Penuel answered him as the men of Succoth had answered him. And he spoke also unto the men of Penuel, saying, When I come again, not if, but when I come again in peace, meaning victoriously, I will break down your tower. Now that's not an idle threat. This town had apparently a tower, like a fortified tower. And they trusted in that for whatever reason. And basically Gideon saying, when I come back, I'm going to tear it down. And they're going to be sorry that they didn't help. Then we get to verse 10. Now Ziba and Zalmunna were in Karkor. And Karkor is just off the map all the way to the east. You can't see it up there. But basically they were getting out of there. And their hosts with them, about 15,000 men, all that were left of all the hosts of the children of the east. So they started off with 135,000, 120,000 are dead, 15,000 are left. For there fell 120,000 men that drew the sword. Verse 11, And Gideon went up by the way of them that dwelt in tents on the east of Nobah and Jogbaha, and smote the host, for the host was secure. Basically, he killed the remaining 15,000 men. You know, he could have just driven them out of his hometown and been happy for a season. But he knew that if he left those men, even the ones that were pursuing away, the leaders and the rest of the army, they would eventually come back. And so what he's doing is what God has really commanded him to do, and I'm assuming that, it's not in our text, but what we read in previous battles was that God commanded the children of Israel to wipe them all out, to leave none remaining. And so that explains his dogged determination to find these guys and to pursue after them, even at great risk to themselves, as they're going farther and farther into basically enemy territory. So Gideon went up by the way, and the host was secure, verse 12. And when Ziba and Zalmunna fled, he pursued after them and took the two kings of Midian, Ziba and Zalmunna, and he discomfited all the host, basically killed them all. Verse 13. And Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from battle before the sun was up and caught a young man of the men of Succoth and inquired of him and described unto him the princes of Succoth and the elders thereof, even threescore and seventeen men. And so as he comes back to Succoth, he catches one of the guys and he says, okay, now where are all these leaders? He didn't go after the yuppie crowd, the twenty-somethings. He went after those that were truly the leaders of the community. So we're talking the men that are 40, 50, 60, probably 70 years old, that had made this choice not to help their brethren out in the midst of the battle. In verse 15, he came unto the men of Succoth and said, Behold, Ziba and Zalmunna, you wanted to see them? Here they are. Whom you did upbraid me, saying, Are the hands of Ziba and Zalmunna now in thine hand, that we should give bread unto thy men that are weary? And he took the elders of the city and thorns of the wilderness and briars, and with them, it says in King James, he taught the men of Succoth. I'm sure that was some very intense instruction. It was counseling like none of us want to receive counseling. Basically, they were getting spanked. Other sources indicate that what they would do is they would strip these guys down, they would lay them on the ground, and they would take the thorns and the briars and stuff, and they would beat them with this until their backs were bloody. Or they would take them and haul them with a rope through the briars and the patches and stuff, and they were basically chastising them because they refused to help when Gideon and his army needed food and nourishment, and it was refused. But it gets even more intense in verse 17. And he beat down the tower of Penuel and slew the men of the city. 
It starts off with the men of Ephraim chastising him, complaining, why didn't you call us sooner? In a sense, calling you know, Gideon names. And Gideon just graciously kind of responds to that and soothes their hurt feelings, if you will, and moves on. But then when they get to Sukkoth, they're in hot pursuit of these kings. They've been fighting all night, all day. They get there and they're tired and they're hungry. And they refused any help from their brethren because they're playing the odds. Who's really going to win this battle? What they're doing, though, is they weren't picking sides against Gideon. They were picking sides against the God of Gideon. They were rebelling against God. And there's a price to pay for that. And so these guys get caught up in that. And then they suffered. They were dealt with pretty harshly. But then they get to Penuel, and it's even harsher. Yeah, he took down the tower like he said he would, but then he killed the men of the town. Why is that? Well, I remember a couple times being on a hike with uh, my scout group and different things, and just kind of like wanting to get to the top so we can cruise down the other way. And I remember one time on this one hike, I was pretty tired. It had been a long hike. We climbed a lot of elevation and stuff. And you see the top of the mountain, it's like, all right, cool. And you get there, and just when you crest the top, that's when you see the other bigger mountain on the other side of it. <laughs> it's like, ah. And the men of Gideon's army, they're tired, they're hungry, and they're coming up to suck off. Oh, our brethren are there. They'll help us. And you know how it is when you're thinking you're going to get food and water and stuff and be refreshed, and they go, get out of here. We don't have nothing to do with you. And it's like, wow. It didn't matter if Penuel was only 100 yards past that, the discouragement that comes with that and the extra mental burden that they bore. So they're turned down. They don't get the nourishment, the food they think they need. So they press on. They come to the next town. Oh, surely these guys will help us. But by then, they're more hungry. They're more tired. They're less confident even. And then the men of Penuel say, get out of here. And Gideon says, we'll be back. And so when he comes back, they lost their lives because they were disobedient to God's word. They lost their lives because they were rebellious to God. And it's a sad thing, but it's just what Paul tells us, that the wages of sin is death. And so they experience basically the same thing. Then we get to verse 18. It says, And then said he unto Zeba and to Zalmunna, What manner of men were they whom you slew at Tabor? Now Tabor is basically back home. And they answered, as thou art, so are they. Each one resembled the children of a king. Man, you know, each one of those guys, they were handsome, just like you. They were studs, just like you. They realized their lives are on the line, and so they're being very complimentary about these men. And then verse 19, And Gideon said, They were my brethren, even the sons of my mother. What he's saying is basically nothing you say matters at this point. You killed my family. You killed my brothers. As the Lord lives, if you had saved them alive, I would not slay you. And he said unto Jether, his firstborn, up and slay them. But the youth drew not his sword, for he feared, because he was yet a youth. Then Zeba and Zalmunna said, Rise thou and fall upon us, for as the man is, so is his strength, or his son. And Gideon arose and slew Zeba and Zalmunna, and took away the ornaments that were upon their camels' necks. Now, Zalmunna and Ziba had killed Gideon's brothers, and their attempt to placate Gideon wasn't going to work. In those days, it mattered very much how a soldier died. Abimelech did not want to die at the hand of a woman. In fact, when a woman threw a rock on his head and crushed his skull, he cried out to his armor bearer, 
pull out your sword and kill me so that it won't be said that a woman killed Abimelech. It's the same thing for King Saul. He did not want it to be said that the Philistines took and abused his body. Kill me now so a servant would kill him. It's a big deal how the soldiers would die. If he died at the hands of a valiant soldier, then it was an honorable death. For a child, Gideon's child, to kill a king would have been the ultimate in humiliation. And that's exactly what he was doing. He was basically saying, son, pull out your sword and kill these guys. And his son was afraid. He wasn't battle-tested. He was probably very young. And the two kings then respond by insulting Gideon. As the man's strength is, his son, he's afraid, so is the man. Well, what they're doing is they're provoking Gideon, who does accept that provocation. He pulls out his sword and he goes over and killed each of those two men. And that was their desire, was to die quickly. But the son missed the opportunity not only to avenge his family, to uphold the law, and to humiliate these two kings. But it would have been like David slaying Goliath. He would have had the honor upon himself for the rest of his life, but basically he just wasn't ready. And so we get to verse 22. Then the men of Israel said unto Gideon, Rule thou over us, both thou and thy son, and thy son's son also. For thou hast delivered us from the hand of Midian. And Gideon said unto them, I will not rule over you, neither shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. The people wanted to establish a kingdom, basically a dynasty, and Gideon very wisely declined. Gideon knew that God is the ultimate leader, that God is the one that should lead his people. But there's kind of an implicit conclusion in Gideon's refusal, and that is that it was the Lord that gave them the victory. It was the Lord that did everything good that came out of all these things. It wasn't Gideon. Gideon is basically acknowledging, no, God is the one that did all these things. And it wasn't Gideon's wisdom or his plan or anything. And so in this part, Gideon shows real wisdom, basically not taking the glory of God, not taking any credit for the good things that have taken place. What happens next, though, begins to show a lack of discernment or understanding of God's ways. Gideon was very careful going into the battle, making sure that it was God's will. He was very sure going into it, making sure that, really, God, I mean, this is what you want me to do and all that kind of stuff, and very careful before the battle. But after the victory was won, seemingly now he becomes very lax. And what I would encourage all of us to be careful of is that be, sure, be careful going into the battle, but after the victory is won, be just as careful and just as vigilant because our enemy isn't the Midianites. Our enemy is the devil. And if we get overconfident because of a victory in the Lord, the enemy is still there, still waiting to pounce. And so we have to be very, very careful. We read here in verse 24, And Gideon said unto them, I would desire a request of you, that you should give me every man the earrings of his prey, for they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, We will willingly give them. And they spread a garment and did cast there in every man the earrings of his prey. And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was a thousand and seven hundred shekels of gold, about fifty pounds of gold, besides the ornaments and collars and the purple raiment that was on the kings of Midian, besides the chains that were about their camels' necks. And I'm sure that when they killed these kings, they took spoil of the land as well. They took their own treasure from Midian or wherever they were and brought it back with them. And so there was lots of spoil. And it says, verse 27, And Gideon made an ephod thereof and put it in his city, even an Ophrah, and all Israel went thither, a whoring after it, which then became a snare unto Gideon and to his house. 
Gideon requests and receives the gold. And then from that, he makes an ephod out of it. And it says it became a snare to the people. And basically, they went whoring after it. And what is meant by that is they were unfaithful to God. They began to worship this thing as opposed to worshiping the true and the living God. Gideon refused the kingdom, but somehow coveted the priesthood. He makes this ephod, which is something that belongs in the tabernacle with the priests. In this whole book thus far, we haven't heard anything about the tabernacle, anything about the priests, anybody standing up, hey, that's wrong or that's right, or instructing the people. Where are they? I don't know. But now Gideon makes this ephod, and when it came to the priestly garments, the ephod was one of those articles of the priestly clothing with which they discerned the will of God. And Gideon may have been attempting in some way to preserve that, like, okay, we need to know God's will. But as you back up from here all the way back through uh, chapter 6, about every four or five verses you'll read those words, and the Lord spoke unto Gideon. Gideon was already hearing from God. Gideon was already understood God's will. God made it very clear to him. So there was no real need for this article to be made other than allowing it to somehow be worshipped in a way that was displeasing to God. There are other times when the people would basically do the same thing. During King Hezekiah's day, they had rediscovered the brazen serpent that Moses raised up in the camp. That If people looked to it, they would be saved from the fiery serpents that were biting them. And the people began to burn incense to this. And so King Hezekiah destroyed it, called it Nehushtan, a wasted thing, a foolish thing, and eliminated the ability of the people to worship that. Why Gideon made this ephod, the Bible records that he did it, doesn't necessarily communicate any kind of approval because it stumbled the people. He's stepping outside the boundaries of what God has appointed him to. God has called each of us to a specific purpose, a specific ministry, a specific thing in life. He's appointed that to us. And when we know what that is, then we step outside of that. We can't really expect God to bless that. I mean, God is gracious and he's kind, but he calls us to do those things he's telling us to do, not necessarily things that we always want to grab onto and claim as our own. And so we see that, that it does actually stumble the people. But then we get to verse 28. Thus was Midian subdued before the children of Israel, so they lifted up their heads no more. Basically, they're down and out. Their armies killed, their kings are killed. And the country was in quietness 40 years in the days of Gideon. And Jerubbaal, the son of Joash, went and dwelt in his own house, and Gideon had threescore and ten sons of his body, begotten, for he had many wives. And his concubine, that was in Shechem, she also bare him a son, whose name is called Abimelech. Now, the Midianites are subdued, there's peace in the land, and Gideon has prospered. He has his own house, he's got seventy sons from his numerous wives, and as much as he's rejected the kingdom, he's living like a king. He's taken this and maybe taken advantage of it in some way, that now he's prospered, and we see that some bad things come from it. There's mention made of the one son of the concubine, and if he had numerous wives that produced 70 children, it's very likely that he had multiple other concubines. But this one is mentioned because of the son she bears. His name is Abimelech. And the next two chapters that we'll read about next week are devoted to his actions, which are bad. In fact, this son will go back and kill the other 69 sons of Gideon. It's a sad ending. He lived like a king. Abimelech, the name, means my father is king. And so obviously Gideon continued to be a very powerful influence there in Israel. In verses 32 through 35, 
And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age and was buried in the sepulcher or the tomb of Joash, his father, in Ophrah of the Abyssalites. He lived to a good old age and he was buried with his fathers. That's an honorable thing. When people were conquered, they died in the field and the vultures ate them up and they weren't buried, actually. But when you die in peace, you die as a powerful person, then you're buried in the tomb of your fathers. You're with your ancestors, so to speak. And that's considered a very honorable end. And so God obviously blessed Gideon. And then verse 33, And it came to pass, as soon as Gideon was dead, that the children of Israel turned again and went whoring after Baalim and Baalbreth, their God. And the children of Israel remembered not the Lord their God, who had delivered them out of the hands of all their enemies on every side. Neither showed they kindness to the house of Jerubbaal, namely Gideon, according to all the goodness which he had showed unto Israel. So even though Gideon died at a good old age and was buried with his fathers and lived a good life, and while he was yet alive, he was an influence for righteousness, which is an awesome thing. But the moment he's gone, the people basically turn. His son Abimelech goes back and kills all of his other brothers, if you will, or half-brothers, and things get really nasty. I've wondered this myself, and it's just a hypothetical kind of a question, not really based on any real circumstances, but I've wondered that if one day everybody else in the world just disappeared. I mean, everybody's gone, and I'm the only one left on the planet. But I've got my Bible in my hand. Would I still seek to walk with the Lord? Would I still worship Him? Would I still be a Christian, even if I was by myself? And I ask you the same question. If everybody else that you know that's a good influence in your life, someone that, that encourages you in the way of the Lord and, and that maybe holds you responsible or accountable or whatever, if all those people disappeared from your life today, if your spouse was removed from the scene, if your parents were removed from the scene, would you still walk with the Lord? I've watched this actually played out in several lives. I've watched each of my kids growing up in a Christian home my kids saw me get saved, and they saw my life change. And they were kind of willingly dragged into that. Dragged is a bad word. But as each of them have left our home to go to school, to get married, do different things, they've each had to walk their own walk in Christianity. All you young people, one day, unless the Lord comes and takes us home to be with Him, one day you will graduate high school, get a job, whatever will happen, and you'll be away from home. Your parents won't be saying, get dressed, let's get in the car, we're going to church. You'll have to set your own alarm and decide to go to church and be in fellowship. My question is, would we all do that if there's no one else to hold us accountable? Would we be like the children of Israel, that that spiritual person is out of our life, and it's like, oh, whatever, you know. We need to be strong in Him. We need to keep our eyes focused on Him. He's the reason we come. I mean, I enjoy fellowship with all of us, and we are a family. But the reason we come is because of Him, not because of each other. And it's important that we keep our eyes on the Lord. It's awesome that we could watch God use someone like Gideon and take an ordinary man and do extraordinary things through him. And that even his influence would last 40 years in a nation that was so bent on idolatry and pagan worship and so forth. And that's the trick. We need to keep our eyes fixed on Him. Because he's the one that's going to lead us. He's the one that's going to guide us. And he's the one that's going to give us the victory. And he's the one we're going to spend the rest of eternity with. What an awesome thing that's going to be. 
Gracious Father, we thank you once again for your word. We thank you, Father, for your presence here in our midst. And we ask, Lord, that you would help us to be mindful of you always. That, Lord, uh, whether there's a, a leader in front of us or behind us, that we would keep our eyes on you and that you would keep us, Lord. We need you to keep us. And we thank you that you're so faithful and so good. Thank you for our Lord Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, that's all the time we have for now. You've just been listening to pastor and teacher Mike Scanlon of Calvary Chapel, Susanville, California, teaching the conclusion of a three-part in-depth study of Judges chapter 7 and 8. Please join us again next time as we continue our study through the book of Judges and through the entire Bible. As We Wait is an outreach ministry of Calvary Chapel, Susanville, California. We pray that you are blessed and we'd like to invite you to join us in person. Calvary Chapel meets at 450 Richmond Road on Sunday mornings at 830 and 1030. Our Wednesday evening service begins at 7 and communion is celebrated the first Sunday of each month at 6 p.m. To get the entire study on CD, please call the church office at 530-257-4833. And if you've made a profession of faith and would like more information on what it is to walk with Jesus or want to know how to grow in your faith, we would love to hear from you. You can write to us at P.O. Box 1316, Susanville, California, 96130. All our services are streamed live on the web at www.ccsusanville.com. Until next time, may the Lord richly bless you. you